This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The ways in which religious leaders from different traditions interact with each other changes with each passing year. Alliances are formed, relationships improve or stumble, projects are planned and implemented. Diplomacy and collaboration between faith leaders is on full display in current events if you look for it. For example, Pope Francis recently became the first pope to visit the Arabian Peninsula in a historic visit to build deeper relationships with regional Muslim leaders and signed what was called a Document on Human Fraternity. I wanted to discuss the topic of interreligious diplomacy, so I called on a scholar who studies such current events and relationships closely. My guest today is Dr. Melanie Barbato. Dr. Barbato researches the mechanisms and strategies of interreligious communication with a focus on high-level actors in cultural diplomacy, such as the Pope and his visit. She is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Munster in Germany and is in partnership with the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies in the UK. She is currently developing a project on Hindu-Christian dialogue. She's also a scholar of Jainism and is the author of Jain Approaches to Plurality, Identity as Dialogue, published by Brill in 2017. In this conversation, we discuss current events, the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue, Jain Practice, and her book. This was a conversation that was a ton of fun for me. We had an energizing discussion, and I hope you love my chat with Dr. Melanie Barbato. I'm here today with my guest, Dr. Melanie Barbato. Dr. Barbato, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So I would like to hear about your career path to start. Um, can you introduce yourself to the audience, sort of however you see fit? Yes, sure. So I'm a researcher in religious studies. My focus is interreligious communication in a wide range of contexts, so from politics to art. And the religions I'm particularly working on are Jainism, Hinduism, Christianity, I'm from Germany. I've studied in the UK and I'm now back in Germany at the University of Münster. I'm working there on my habilitation thesis. Uh, habilitation is kind of a second doctorate in the German education system where you prepare for becoming a professor. And I also collaborate on a project called Legions of the Pope on the political power of the papacy. I also like to get involved in grassroots interreligious projects. And I write poems, sometimes on topics of religion and interreligious issues. Marvelous. Uh, where did, <laughs> what did you do in the UK? 
I did a bachelor there in philosophy and religious studies and also a master in oriental studies with focus on South Asian studies. Very cool. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad to uh, always talk to people about their travels because I lived in the UK for a while. I did in Mexico for a while in Canada. So I'm always fascinated by what people have done in other countries because I think that's the coolest lifestyle ever. Okay, so today I've invited you on the show to talk about a few topics within your areas of interest. You and I have been connected on Twitter now for a long time, and we've talked about having this conversation for many months, so I'm thrilled that you're finally here. And the topics I want to talk to you about are interreligious dialogue and Jainism specifically. And you're also interested in Hinduism, Asian art, cultural diplomacy, so you've got this fantastic array of interests. How did you come to care about this specific focused scholarly area of interest? Like, what were some of the pivotal moments in that studies journey that helped you pin down these areas of interest? I grew up in Bavaria, which is a largely Catholic area, but I'm not from a particularly religious family. But as a child, I had a friend from Japan, a friend from England, and I also had a Jewish friend. And I remember when I was still a kindergarten kid, my mom saying that um, she thinks her um, his mom is really brave for wearing a Star of David on a necklace. And at the time, I did not know anything about German history, about the background, but I was intrigued about the meaning of religious symbols, about different traditions, and also about how people in different cultures wrestle with big questions. So that's how I came in the end to enroll in a BA in philosophy and religious studies at the University of Stirling. And it was a great time learning about all kinds of religions. And it happened that in um, the philosophy part of that joint degree, I had a module on logic, on formal logic. And at the same time, I also had in the religious study part of that um, degree course, a module on Hinduism. And there I heard about a school called Nyaya, translated as logic typically within Hindu thought. But it appeared very different. While the logic in the philosophy course looked like math to me with abstract symbols and like I learned that something could not be A and non-A at the same, t same time. The Nyaya school, it was much more about rhetoric, about language, about how convince someone about a certain philosophical position in rhetorical contests. So I developed an interest in how across different cultures, different concepts can have such a wide range of meaning and how um, ideas travel between different cultures. Those are some of the things that inspire me in my own classroom as well. Like I love learning about the internal diversity of religions, and I love watching my students interact with people um, who have different uh, philosophical and religious beliefs than them. It's just so rewarding. And we live in interesting and messy times in which religion is all around us, whether we pay attention to it or not, and it impacts our lives. And you have this specific interest in diplomatic and interreligious dialogue, which is so fantastic and important. And I recently read a piece of your work called Diplomatic Language in the Deepavali Messages of the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. And to me, interreligious dialogue is like what it's all about for me. Like that makes me so happy to personally engage in those types of discussions. So interreligious dialogue is one of the most intriguing and seemingly on its face important activities that people and authorities representing religions can do. 
So first of all, what I want to know is if you can give listeners like the lay of the land and what types of interreligious dialogue groups exist among various world religions and the extent that there is communication between leaders of various religious sects and groups around the world. Like, to what extent do religious leaders speak to each other? Yeah, so I think interreligious dialogue is really an umbrella term for a whole range of activities. And dialogue among leaders, what I call diplomatic dialogue, is only a very small part of that activity going on. So there has always been some encounter between religious leaders. Just this year, we have the 800th anniversary of St. Francis meeting the Sultan in Damietta. And um, though we don't know the content of that conversation, it continues to be remembered and to inspire dialogue among leaders right up to today. Then the first formal uh, interreligious dialogue event was probably in Chicago at the um, Parliament of the World Religions in 1893, where really leaders from around the world were invited to present their religions on a big stage. And of course, very recently, we have, for example, the Pope Francis visiting the United Arab Emirates, where he handed actually as a gift a medal of St. Francis over to tied back to that very um, old historical encounter. So there is that long history of um, interreligious dialogue on the level of leadership, but it doesn't have to be face-to-face. So in my paper, I'm looking particularly at um, how messages are addressed from the high level of leadership, but to all Hindus, also through the internet. So there are many different ways of facilitating that dialogue. Excellent. So it seems like... um Pope Francis was hugely aware of the symbolism of what he was doing because he's the first pope to ever visit the Arabian Peninsula, right? Absolutely. Yeah, the theme of his visit, it's also referring to um, being um, a channel for peace. And on the website for um, his travels, there he has a prayer that is typically ascribed to St. Francis. So he's really making that um, whole journey in commemorating that earlier encounter, that um, historical, peaceful conversation between two uh, historical figures. Wonderful. Okay, so the title of your article that I've been referring to mentions the Pontifical Council for Religious Interreligious Dialogue, which is housed in the Vatican, I would presume, right? Yes. Okay, so who is this group? What do they do? I grew up Catholic. I've never heard of this group until I read your paper and I'm 35. So um, can you tell me a little bit about who these who these groups are and what do they do on a daily basis to um, extend interreligious dialogue in a diplomatic fashion? Yeah, the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue, or short PCID, it's a Catholic institution or a papal office. And it has the task of fostering relations with members of other religions. It was set up in 1964 as the Secretariat for Non-Christians. And the context is that one of the major achievements of the Second Vatican Council was the Declaration Nostra Aetate. So that's on the relation of the church with non-Christian religions. And that laid the ground for the interreligious dialogue of the Catholic Church. Now, the Secretariat was founded to bring this task forward. And in 1988, it was renamed into Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue to emphasize that it's really a two-way conversation. 
It has a three-tier structure, a decision-making body that consists of around 35 cardinals or bishops, an advisory body um, that has around 30 consultants. So that could be um, academics who have a special knowledge of interreligious dialogue or specific religious traditions and an executive body with permanent staff. And actually, the position of the president is currently vacant because the last president passed away. But Cardinal Toron, he was a very prominent figure in interreligious dialogue. And what do they do? They, for example, they arrange visits for um, leaders from other faiths to visit the Pope. And they also provide scholarships for young academics from other religious backgrounds to study at the pontifical universities. And then they also send out messages to uh, communities from different religions, like on the occasion of Diwali to the Hindus. Now, Diwali, it's um, a festival of lights that is each year in autumn. And it's a joyous occasion that is celebrated by all Hindus. So it's the per perfect occasion for sending greeting messages to the Hindus. Excellent. Um, so the Vatican has a very specific hierarchical structure, but a lot of religions don't have structures like that with like a centralized um, authority figure. Are there similar councils representing other religious traditions around the world to the PCID or are they kind of unique? Um, the PCID is certainly in a unique position that it can speak for all Catholics due to the hierarchical structure of the Catholic Church. But there are other offices and programs for dialogue, for example, the World Council of Churches, which is a ecumenical organization. They also uh, have dialogue programs and they actually work in close cooperation with the PCID. Then, for example, the American Jewish Committee, they cultivate international high-level um, interreligious alliances, such as Christian-Jewish or Hindu-Jewish, Muslim-Jewish dialogue, and also the Muslim Council of Elders. They have a project, Dialogue of East and West, where they seek to strengthen the cooperation between all humans, regardless of race and belief. So there are many programs internationally and in different religious communities that seek to foster dialogue on the high level. I'm curious in your research if you found anything about the effectiveness of these groups. Um, like, do they do anything besides, like, you know, paying lip service to each other and being respectful of other belief systems? Or they do they engage in any kind of, like, activism together where they're actually making concrete changes in the world? Like, what are they, uh, what are some of their notable achievements in collaboration? Um, whether their work is meaningful, I think it really depends on um, what you would define as meaningful. In the article, I'm arguing that this form of dialogue, it's best understood as a form of diplomacy, very much in the type like heads of states tend to hold a New Year speech. And um, is that meaningful? Yes, I think it is, because it's about setting out good relationships and within that space that is opened up by that diplomatic dialogue, then other forms of activism can take place. But the diplomatic dialogue that I'm looking at, it's not so much about concrete implementation of any achievements, but um, it's more like maybe uh, sending a Christmas card regularly to an acquaintance. And it's not so much what you write into that card. It's that the fact that you send it 
And it's also maybe wouldn't be good to really try to think about something really inventive to write into that card, but uh, because that might uh, astonish the recipient. But it's more like a, a form of gift exchange that has actually been interpreted by some scholars. So, so then when you have these good relations that are established on that level, there can be other more practical things to follow. For example, um, on the high level again, the International Conference on Population and Development in 1994. There, the Vatican appealed to leaders of all religions and particularly to Muslim leaders for backing of a traditional sexual morality, which the Catholic Church perceived to be under attack at that specific event. And then I would also say that talk is not always cheap. So um, the joint declaration of um, the Pope and the Grand Imam of the Al-Azhar, that's now been signed as part of the, the visit to the Arabian Peninsula. I think it's really path-breaking and a strong commitment. If you look at some of the things that are written in there, it's um, touching on some thorny issues like um, calling for full citizenship, freedom of religion, political rights for women, condemnation of terrorism, forced displacement, and also the call for the protection of places of worship like um, as a religious duty. I think these are important things to raise these issues and to have them in the public sphere. How was the Pope's visit received in the UAE? Did you happen to see any stories about how he was received um, when he went? Um, the United Arab Emirates, they have now this year a year of tolerance. So there's a, um, some have said like a public relations attempt to open up or to, to improve the image on issues like uh, religious freedom. There have been some critical voices who say this is just on the surface. But then there has, has also been very positive voices who say that this meeting happening between um, representatives of different religions, that's really a historical moment. And especially for the, um, the migrant workers who are in the United Arab Emirates, they um, see a real uh, hope in that encounter taking place. So there are always critical voices, especially on that type of dialogue taking place. Many people say it's just uh, surface, it's not real dialogue. But I think it's a first step and it's a hopeful sign that many people shared that perception. So that hopeful perception and that first step is obviously like a launching point into the future. So as a scholar who studies these types of events and trends around the world, what do you see some um, some future projects being of interreligious diplomacy between different faith leaders around the world? Like, what do you see them trying to do in the future? Um, I think all, all communities worldwide they encounter growing diversity. So that's really the big thing that there is now a real awareness that we are living in a small and diverse world and that uh, this diversity has to be made sense of and also to be regulated in some forms. And also that there is no one actor that can dominate that diversity. So I think that the one thing that is really the, the, the growing tendency is the understanding of the importance of interreligious dialogue. So that more and more communities really participate in that and want to be part of shaping the future. If a listener wants to know um, some good sources or books or anything that they should look for on interreligious dialogue, what are some things that you would recommend for people who want to know more about this topic? 
um, there's the companion to interreligious dialogue, the Wiley Blackwell companion. That would be a good resource. But then um, I also recommend going directly to the websites of the different organizations to see what these communities say in their own words. Excellent. Um, so I kind of want to springboard off of that from interreligion diplomacy to another area of your research focus, um, which is another piece that you wrote that you sent me called Jane Approaches to Religious Plurality. And you also have a whole book out in 2017 from Brill on the same topic called Jane Approaches to Plurality. So um, just a quick aside, because this is something that I think is an interesting question. What is the difference between pluralism and plurality? I think that's an interesting question. Okay. The way I define these terms, because different uh, people use them differently, is I use plurality as the fact that there are diverse positions or many different religions. So there's um, yeah, diversity in the world. So that's a neutral um, statement as that. And pluralism, I really see as one of three options that uh, someone can take to the salvific value of a religion. So someone could, could say that um, there is only one religious tradition that leads to the highest good, say to heaven or to uh, liberation. And that would be an exclusivist position. Then there would be the position that someone says there's only one that is the highest fulfillment of that salvific um, value. But there are others that have some value in that. So that would be an inclusivist position. And then there's pluralism, which would be the view that at least two religions can lead to the highest good. So that's the, the distinction I draw. Okay, cool. That's a really important thing. And uh, so I didn't know that. So I appreciate learning that from you just now. Um, so one of the things that I really liked about following you whenever I found you on Twitter ages ago is that I find Jainism and uh, discussing Jainism to be so interesting. And I had one of my good friends back on the show a long time ago to talk about Jainism, but I haven't been able to explore it a whole lot um, in the last year on the show. And so I'm really glad that we can talk about it for a few minutes. Um, can you tell me what initially drew you to Jainism? What was it about Jainism that made you know that you had to follow it as a student? When I learned about Indian logic as an undergraduate, I also came across um, the notion that there was a seven-valued logic so I thought, well, not only A or non-A, but actually seven possibilities. And I decided to look deeper into that. And then I found that there are many different interpretations of that Jain logic or Anikantavada, but actually that's not like a form of mysticism, but that it's a whole set of philosophies and I wanted to get into that. And it's only from that more philosophical viewpoint that I developed an interest in Jainism as a religion. So can you summarize how Jains generally view religious plurality, given that they are for the most part a tiny minority religious group in a country of around a billion people? How do they see themselves in a religious uh, plurality sense? Um, generally, they're very open to learn from others and also to discuss. So what I found is that 
they, uh, when you bring up some topic, they're immediately seeking to engage and looking also how can Jainism maybe contribute something to the discussion and how can we uh, develop some common ideas here. They also take great pride in that attitude. So one Jain said to me that Jains are soft-hearted people and um, many modern texts also talk about chain tolerance. The historical context is more complicated, but that's how um, chains present themselves as a religion that places so much value on tolerance. When I asked chains directly about how they viewed other religions, about our, um, what do you think of followers of other religions is what they believe is also true. There were two positions. The one was that really different religious um, ideas, they are like two sides of a coin. One person believes that, another person believes something different, but they are both equally true or equally real. And the other view that I encountered was that the other person might not be right in their view, but that because we are all limited in our knowledge, we should still be respectful to them and um, try to have a civil and uh, friendly conversation. So chains don't have a problem generally, I think, with being a minority. There is the view in Jainism also that um, in the long cosmic cycles that characterize our world, Jainism gets forgotten time and again and is rediscovered. So being a minority uh, religion right now, that's just how things are. But there are some practical problems. For, and for example, some Hindus want to claim Jainism as part of Hinduism. And that's something most chains strongly object to. So I met, for example, Bal Patil. He was a Jain scholar and social activist. And he petitioned the Supreme Court in India for the recognition of Jainism as a, a religious minority status. But that's more a social issue, not one that is tied to the religion. So many listeners will likely know a little bit about Jainism, but there are some... Um characteristics, some identity characteristics of Jainism that you lay out really nicely in the article, and those are Anakantavada and Ahimsa. Can you give a brief overview of each of those terms, just so everybody's on the same page for terminology? Okay, about Anakantavada, it's in, by modern science, it's often interpreted as uh, being open to discussion in different contexts. And I've called that identity about um, being rooted in one's identity, but being open to all forms of discussion, um, a dialogical identity. So anekantavada, it means non-one-sidedness. And at the most basic level, it means that Jains hold that every object, object um, possesses an infinite number of properties. So every perspective on that object will be limited because we can only grasp through our senses a limited uh, number of aspects at one time. And also every sentence that we say will express only one perspective and there would be many other perspectives that would be just as true. So one part of Jain philosophy says that we should actually, in every state, statement we make include the particle yard. So that would be from a certain perspective. So whatever I say, I should at least keep in mind, I say that from a certain perspective. The soul is eternal from a certain perspective. The soul is not eternal from a certain perspective. And 
in practice, that really leads to a nuanced perception and articulation of things, even though this whole philosophical background, it's not always there when talking to Jains. I think that's something that can really be sensed in conversations, that that's the cultural background here. Then um, nonviolence, ahimsa, that um, means non-harming, but it's not just not doing anything, but it's really from a position of strength. And that's where I really like the story of Bahubali. Um, can I tell it? Sure. Yeah, okay. Um, so it's a story about a king who decided to retire and to become an ascetic. So he divided his kingdom uh, among his hundred sons. And one of these hundred sons, Bharata, he really wanted to have all the kingdom. And that looked like almost no problem because 98 of the brothers, they decided to devote their life to religion as well. But there was one other brother, Bahubali, it means the born with the strong arms, <laughs> and he did not want to give up his part of the kingdom. So they were about to start a war, but then it was decided that this would lead to a lot of unnecessary suffering. So the two of them should really um, fight it out between themselves. And... Um, the way it went, it looked as if Bahubali would have almost won. But just in the moment when he was about to defeat his brother, he realized, like, what am I doing here fighting my own brother just for a kingdom? <laughs> and um, he stopped. And he dropped all his clothes and entered meditation, standing there completely motionless. And he stood there for almost a year till um, plants were growing up, his legs and uh, ants built antils next to his feet. And he just meditated and um, got rid of all that negative karmic particles that had uh, polluted the, the human souls. That was James think that our soul, um, it's polluted by karmic particles like dust. And um, then when he had almost finished one year of meditation, his brother came and uh, paid respect to him because he realized what a great uh, spiritual person his um, Bahubali was. And at that moment, Bahubali was, was so relieved and so happy to see his brother because he had always felt um, bad about that conflict with his brother that that last bit of uh, karmic uh, pollution bent off his soul and he became an omniscient, which is the goal of Jainism, like the, um, the highest uh, achievement. So I think that's really a beautiful story about how we are interconnected, but also about how um, not fighting can be the best solution for all or the best option for all. I've got a lot of thoughts about Anakantavada and Ahimsa here. Do you, as, as a person who lives in an advanced Western democracy, do you think about Anakantavada and non-one-sidedness when you like walk around in your town? Yes, I do, because there's so much one-sidedness going on in um, media um, depictions of issues or uh, even when we meet on Twitter and you see what people position there, I often think like um, it's better to to reflect on what would the person on the other side say. And for example, in, in Jainism, one of the symbols, it's a palm. And on that palm, it's, it's written Ahimsa. So I think it would be good to stick that uh, palm, which says stop before <laughs> you do something on the computer screen, because so often it would be better to stop and choose the nonviolent approach. 
Yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot as well, especially since I was reading your article. You have a passage in the article that says, Jainism is simultaneously characterized by a great respect for knowledge and the ideal of outright humility. From this follows a certain reluctance to condemn other positions as outright wrong. Rather, non-Jain positions tend to be described as limited, and as most limited are perceived those that aggressively claim to hold the absolute truth. In the competition of different religions and worldviews, the Jain strategy is to point out that many of them have understood part of reality, but at the price of denying other equally valid descriptions of reality. Now, the other day I was talking to a guy who did an adaptation of the Tao Te Ching for Shambhala named Sean Michael Wilson, who's a Scottish graphic novelist, and there's a page in the book where it shows a scientist saying that she doesn't know the answer, and she was talking to a journalist, and the journalist was like, well, aren't you concerned? And she's like, well, no, this provides me a new avenue of exploration. So she's like excited by the uncertainty, but the journalist craved the scientists to be certain. And I mean, everything about our world today is like, you know, everybody feels like they're right and how they are the only ones who can solve our problems, how outsiders are terrible, how every story is fake. So right now, like, I struggle with a lot of this, and I feel like this article about Jainism shows that um, things can be a little different. And I'm glad that you see parallels in your society as well, because it makes me feel like I'm uh, not alone. Do you uh, do you think, have, have you spoken to any Jains who live in, like, near you or around you that are using Anakantavada to think about our modern society? In Germany, there are hardly any trains. I tried to find some community, but not so. But I've been to India and I spoke to many trains there and also I've been to the UK and um, did some visits there. So, yes, um, the Anikantavada is used today and also Ahimsa. It's very much applied in, in daily life. And I think what is uh, important to remember both Anikantavada and Ahimsa is that um, the social aspect, it, it comes second because uh, very much traditionally Jainism started out as a renouncer's religion. So the social healing only comes after the individual healing. So the, the main outlook is on cleaning the soul because the fundamental categories in Jainism, it's soul and non-soul. And actually, it's sort of quite literally that the soul is immaterial, but all this um, material dust sticks to the soul. And violence is the worst kind of attracting this uh, karmic pollution to the soul. So um, it's really about not killing for oneself or not harming any living being for oneself. And that is um, going into every aspect of life. So, for example, on the diet, it's best to eat a fruit that has fallen from the tree without plucking the fruit even. And obviously, it's the worst form if you cut off a branch just to eat an apple. So it uh, goes through all aspects of uh, Jain life. And then about how it makes a difference concrete, in concrete forms in society, um, I think that Jainism probably had the strongest impact in the world through Gandhi, 
because uh, Gandhi was very much influenced by Jain thoughts of Ahimsa. And through him, many other activists have been inspired in the world. So on a personal level, but also on a social or political level, there have been some impact of Anakantavada and Ahimsa. My students love talking about Jain ethics, Anakantavada and Ahimsa, and I've made them in the past read uh, an essay um, and a podcast episode by Peter Adamson, who does the History of Philosophy podcast, and he's at LMU in Munich. Have you ever come across him? Yes, I think he gave the speech at my uh, doctoral um, ceremony. It oh. was brilliant and very entertaining, yes. Yes, he is fantastic. Okay, so Peter's work has um, always led to energized conversations about ahimsa in my classroom and vegetarianism in particular. Being from the middle of the United States, vegetarianism is something that a lot of the students are interested in, but it's very, very minimally practiced. Um your essay says that Jains might be willing to identify non-Jain vegetarians as Jains. Did I read that right? Yes, <laughs> that's obviously not an official doctrine, but it's a position that I came across almost literally several times. And also when I was in India and spoke to Jains, no one uh, took an issue with me being Christian. But almost everybody wanted to know about my diet. So I felt that um, that's the way that Jains figure out what kind of person they're talking to. And it's more important than uh, formal affiliation to some form of uh, religion. And also when I spoke to some people and asked, what is Jainism for you? Some would say leading a vegetarian life. And that does not mean that this is all that is to Jainism. Of course, it's not true, but it's really the solid foundation. And also, when I ask him, so Anekantavada means there's some truth in many different positions. Is there also a way in which meat eating is okay? And there they would always say, no, it's not. <laughs> so that's really the foundation of Jain identity, killing. It's not uh, It's not good for the soul. That's really the one thing that everyone agreed about. So there's if someone is not a chain but agrees on that aspect, then they have a lot of common already. One of my friends who's a Jain, uh, he says that his car is vegetarian because if his if he goes out to eat at a restaurant with his friends and they have leftovers and there's meat in a leftover takeout box, that he will not let them get in their car and he makes them and they have to walk home. Yeah, it's, it can be difficult for Jains. In, in India, there's vegetarian food everywhere. You can get the Jain option in restaurants, and that's safe because you know that there's uh, nothing in there that Jain diet doesn't allow. But in the West, it's different, yes. Do Jains see Jainism as a religion or a behavior value system? Some Jains are very critical of the term Jainism, because they don't want to be part of any ism, which uh, they see as limiting and restricting. And also the um, the notion that ideologies defense in communities, and then that can lead to conflict. So uh, one lecturer of Jainology I spoke to, he said, my religion is not Jainism, my religion is Ahimsa. And um, that really, in writing my thesis and the book, it really um, presented a challenge on how to talk about Jainism. Because um, even, is it a religion? Is it a philosophy? 
what terms do I use? Do I always say philosophy and religion? For something like Anikantavada or Ahimsa, it has philosophical and religious implications. Some writers, they will use Sanskrit terms to avoid that. But then I'm trying to translate something for an audience that is Western. So I don't think that's the perfect solution either. And it's very difficult to solve. But I think that um, Anikantavada here also can help to say that, yes, Jainism is in some perspective, a religion. It is in some perspective a philosophy, and it may be in some perspective something that defies um, these categories. So here, I think also for academics, Anikantavada would be a good starting point for looking at any subject. I absolutely love that. I think that's so <laughs> fascinating and cool. Um, so in your work, what are some goals or future research that you have within Jainism, interreligious diplomacy, Hinduism, like where are you headed as an academic in your in your career future? Um, with regard to Jainism, something that I would really like to look at is the actual uh, interreligious work that Jains are doing, because there have been cases where Jains have worked as um, peacemakers to um, mediate in religious conflict. And I would like to look at these historical instances. More concretely, what I'm doing next is from November, I'm starting a project called Dialogue and Diplomacy on the involvement of the Vatican and the World Council of Churches in Hindu-Christian relations. And there I'm looking particularly at the documents that have been issues, issued about the languages in use and the, the word choices and just how um, Christian organizations think that um, what makes a good strategy of talking to Hindus. Excellent. Um, so where can people find you if they want to follow your work or find these fantastic articles that we've discussed today? <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter, and it's at Melanie underscore Barbato. And I also have a website. It's MelanieBarbato.com. Fantastic. Well, uh, Dr. Melanie Barbato, this has been such a fantastic and fun conversation. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibing. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.